You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 17, and let's bow our heads together before we begin. Our gracious Father, we desire to be taught by you this morning from your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide in rightly understanding the things that are true of you and your purposes and your plans and what you require of us. Help us to think clearly and accurately so that we might give to you the honor that you are due. And may your word instruct us in these ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 17, we're going to be reading together verses 20 through the end of the chapter. Verse 20 through the end of the chapter. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. We come now to verse 20 in our study of John chapter 17, and we're reaching something of a, of a transition point where the, 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 the subject matter is changing a little bit. At the beginning of uh, this prayer, I, I mentioned a few things in regards to the whole context and the whole structure of the prayer. John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer because in it we get a glimpse of Jesus praying for his people and not just the 11 disciples but all of his people, all whom the Father had given to him. That is the whole church, the whole bride of Christ. He is praying for them. And I think it gives us something of a glimpse as to what the Lord would be praying for us, even while he sits at the Father's right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us today. So we still have the the Lord praying for us and for his people today. And I think John 17 is some glimpse as to what Jesus would even be praying for us now. And as we are here as his people We get an idea of what his heart is. And I suggested a general outline of chapter 17 back at the beginning. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his glory and for the work that the Father had given him to do. And in praying for those things, they're really connected to us because he shares his glory with us, which we just read. He's giving to us his glory, and we will share that glory with him. And the work that he undertook was on our behalf. So even in praying for himself, in a sense, He is also praying for us, his people, for the fact that that work would be accomplished on behalf of his people, all that the Father gave him to do. And verses 6 through 19, the the scope changed a little bit as he began to pray specifically for the 11 disciples, those 11 men, Judas absent, who were there with him on this final evening of his life. And in praying for them, he is also at the same time praying things that, though they are true of the 11, are also true of us. And we've noticed that as we've worked our way through. Now we come to verse 20, and the scope broadens even wider from beyond the 11 to all those, verse 20 says, all those who would believe in him through the testimony of the disciples, the apostles. And that would include everybody who has lived and believed after this night when these 11 men were with him. 
It would include all of those whom the Father has given to Him. Believers in the past, from that night all the way through to the present, it includes you here if you are a believer and you are in Christ. This prayer includes you. And it includes all who will continue to believe until the Lord returns and gathers in all of His chosen ones uh, into the church. So this this prayer is far-reaching. It goes from eternity past to eternity future when we are with Him from before the foundation of the world when He shared glory with the Father all the way until we share that glory with Him after everything is wrapped up and we are with Him in glory and uh, this world is no more and everything has been recreated. So it is a, a broad and, and grand uh, sweeping prayer that Jesus is praying in this chapter. Now, when we re- come to verse 20, there is something of a change of emphasis. We've The scope of the prayer is broadened a little bit, but then the emphasis has changed just a little bit. In verses 6 through 19, there were really two things that were emphasized. Number one, the fact that the Father has given to His Son a people to save. These are the elect ones. Jesus says they belong to the Father, and the Father gave them to Him, and they are still His, and they are still the Father's. And the second thing that is emphasized there is the the fact that we are not of this world, and we yet we remain in this world. And we've looked at that in the last few weeks as we went through the end of verse 19. And those two things are connected, by the way. Those who are chosen are obviously chosen out of the world. They do not belong to the world because they belong to the Father. So those two things are connected. Verse 20, the emphasis changes just a little bit. And the two things that are emphasized in the remainder of this chapter are the unity of all believers and our unity eventually with God in glory. The unity of all believers with each other and the unity of all believers with God in His eternal glory. And so that's what we're going to be looking at for this week and the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the subject of unity. What is it? How do we know it when we see it? How is unity manifested? What are false views of unity? This is an enormous subject, the subject of unity, because Scripture says a lot of things about it, and there are a lot of misapprehensions of what true biblical unity is. So we're going to be talking about what true biblical unity is and illustrating that. Uh, in, the, in this week and the week to come. But let's begin with the context, because verse 20 and part of 21, which we're going to look at this morning, give us some idea as to, uh, as to what type of unity Jesus is describing in this context. So verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Now when Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, who is he referring to by the these alone? That would be the disciples. And so right now, beginning at verse 20, we get some indication that what Jesus has in mind in this prayer is something beyond just that immediate evening with just those immediate men, the eleven disciples. And we are brought into the reality that in the mind of the Lord, while He has been praying, and as He is continuing to pray, is is something more than just these eleven men. He has prayed for them, yes, specifically, but He's not asking these things, and not just the things that follow, but everything in this prayer. He is not asking these things just for these eleven men. But he has in mind here all of his people and his entire church. And so he is praying these things on behalf of all of those who would believe in him through the testimony of the disciples. So this encompasses all the people who would eventually believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his entire church, and how have we believed? We have believed what? Verse 20, the word of these men. That is the testimony of these apostles. When he says, we will also believe in me through their word, the there refers to the testimony of the apostles. Every Christian who has ever become a Christian has become a Christian because they have believed the testimony of the apostles. In the Gospels, we have the eyewitness testimony of eyewitness men who walked with Jesus. That's the testimony of the apostles. In the book of Acts, we have the uh, an eyewitness account of the preaching and the ministry of these men who were with Jesus on this night. After Acts, we have in all of the epistles the, the writings of the life of these men and the, the writings of the doctrine concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, anybody who has believed upon God and believed the gospel has believed the testimony of these men because the gospel is the testimony of these men. And so when we believe the gospel, we are believing the testimony of the apostles. Anybody who preaches the gospel is sharing the testimony of the apostles. Anybody who preaches the word actually is sharing the doctrine and the testimony and preaching and proclaiming the testimony of the apostles. So how have we believed and what have we believed upon? We have believed upon the testimony of these men contained in Scripture. And that is why Paul could say in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets because we have believed the things spoken and written concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, which is the recorded testimony of these men. And so this prayer now, verse 20, encompasses all of us, and, and we are the ones who have believed. And I want you to notice the balance here, by the way. This is kind of a little aside, but it, it occurred to me this last week when I was reading through this. Notice the balance. These, these people are referred to, Christians, or his people are referred to as those who have believed. And we've emphasized a lot all the way through this chapter, the sovereignty of God. The Father gave a people to the Son. Yes, those people are the elect. Yes, we affirm that. These people are the special possession of the Father, and they're given to the Son for the Son to save. We affirm that. These are the ones for whom he has sanctified and set himself apart as a sacrifice, and he has offered a sacrifice on their behalf. We affirm that. He is not praying for the world. He's not doing these things on behalf of the world, on behalf of the goats and those who are not his. He is doing and saying these things specifically for his people That is the picture of the sovereignty of God in all of these things. But at the very same time, we affirm and Jesus affirms that these are the ones who have believed. Because nobody is saved apart from belief. And faith and repentance, these are the means by which we are saved. I just want you to notice that Scripture holds these in balance always. When you get off on one side and you begin to deny human responsibility, you're a hyper-Calvinist. And and if you deny uh, uh, the sovereignty of God, you are an Arminian or a Pelagian or an open theist. And so the balance is right in the middle, affirming that God, both God is sovereign and man is responsible, that God does choose a people, but these people also believe. These two things go together, and they always go together in Scripture. And we see it right here even in this passage. A prayer where the sovereignty of God and salvation is mentioned and emphasized and prayed about and explained also mentions us believing, because that is the human responsibility part of, of our activity. Okay, so verse 20, we are the ones who have also believed, and now he is praying that all of them, that is, the eleven, as well as all who will believe upon him, that they may all be one. Look at verse 20. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That we, this is not the first time we've seen the idea of the unity of God's people mentioned in this prayer. Remember back in verse 11. Just look up there at the text for just one moment. At the end of verse 11, verse 11 says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So there is a reference there to the prayer, uh, the reference there to the unity of all of these people. And also notice there that this unity is in some way analogous to the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. He mentions that in verse 11, and I told you in verse 11, we're going to put off our discussion of Christian unity until we get later on in the chapter where this is unfolded and prayed for uh, much more repeatedly, and we'll talk about what unity is. And that t- is today. That's what we're doing today. So we come now to verse 21, where it, this idea of the oneness of all of God's people is mentioned. And it is a oneness that, again, he states, is somehow analogous to the oneness between the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. In verse 22, we see it mentioned again, the glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one. Look at ver- Just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So this idea of unity is mentioned more than once in the passage. It is obviously something that is important to the Lord. So now we have to pause for a moment and ask ourselves, 
What is biblical Christian unity? What is real biblical unity? What does it look like? And we're going to pause actually for more than a moment because the rest of the sermon is about this. So we're going to stop for the rest of the sermon and answer this question, what is real biblical unity? And this is going to serve as kind of an introduction to the subject of unity, which will help frame the frame our ideas and our arguments so that when we get start to work our way through the passage, we understand exactly what it is that Jesus is describing. What is real unity? Now, if I asked you, if I asked everybody here, would you say that unity among Christians is a good, desirable, and important thing? Probably everybody here would raise their hands and say, yes, unity among Christians is a good, desirable, and important thing. And I would agree with that. And then if I were to ask you, do you think that Christians today are unified? Some of you are already shaking your head no. Some of you would say, yes, they are. Some of you would say, no, they're not. And some of you would rightly say, it depends on what you mean by unity and unified. Because whether we affirm that Christians today are united or not depends on what we mean by unity. So what is real biblical Christian unity? There are a lot of false views of unity that exist. And one of the dangers is that we have an idea of what we think unity is. And then when we come to a passage like John chapter 17 and we're reading through it, that they all may be one, that they may be perfected in unity, that we read our idea of what unity is into the passage rather than asking ourselves what type of unity is it that Jesus is describing in this passage. We don't want to read our idea of unity into the passage and then think, well, Jesus' prayer is either fulfilled or it's not fulfilled. We want to ask ourselves, what does he mean by unity? And I think that the context, as you'll see in a moment, I think that the context defines for us the terms and the parameters of how we would understand unity. And when we understand what Jesus says about unity, then I would have to say, yes, the Christian church, his believers, his people are perfectly united. There is no division among us. But it all boils down to what do we mean by unity? Let me give you a few examples of what passes for unity in our day. There seems to be in our culture a press, and I mean a hard press, for expressions of unity, outward expressions of unity, where we gloss over all differences and distinctions in doctrine and theology and denominational differences and all of those things that appear to divide us, and we press hard instead for unity. Because we live in a postmodern world, a postmodern culture, which says that you cannot say that one lifestyle is inferior to another lifestyle, or that one idea is better than another, or that one culture is superior to another culture. You can't say these things, because the minute you affirm that anything is true, you draw a line in the sand, and then obviously you have people on one side of that line, and people on the other side of that line, and then you divide people. And the worst thing in our world is that people would be divided. You have people on one side of an issue, and one's people on the other side of an issue. And so there's this press, because we live in a postmodern world, and because the church has adopted postmodernism as a worldview, that in the church we, we want to obliterate all these distinctions and just embrace everyone and everything. So let me give you a few modern examples. You don't have to go back in time very far to, to, for any of these examples. When Pope Francis was made the Pope, Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, America's pastor, Southern Baptist, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, Baptist pastor in California, came out and embraced the Pope and called him on a Catholic channel in an interview with a Catholic journalist, our Pope, quote-unquote, our Pope. Our Pope. Who is he speaking for, our Pope? What does he mean by our Pope? And it was almost a breathless embrace of Pope Francis. And Rick Warren went on to talk about how Christ-like he was, how godly he was. He just lives and breathes and exudes 
the love of Christ, and he is the most Christ-like man that has ever walked and is walking the face of this planet, according to Baptist Protestant pastor Rick Warren. Now, I would agree with Rick Warren in this, that Pope Francis has certain Christ-like tendencies. He spends time with drunkards, liars, thieves, prostitutes, and tax collectors, also known as a joint session of Congress. You saw that recently. He was on the news. He addressed a joint session of Congress. But beyond that, the similarities to Jesus Christ end. Because he is a man, his leftist politics aside, he is a man who denies the exclusivity, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is a universalist. He believes things about Mary and the Mass and salvation and justification and sanctification and a whole host of other things that are patently and blatantly heretical. Now, don't you remember when John Piper came out and made sure that all of us felt that Rick Warren was the most reformed pastor in America because he affirmed the writings of Jonathan Edwards and read the writings of Jonathan Edwards and and we were all supposed to think that, man, Pastor Warren is one of us. And now he's calling the Pope our Pope. And and he does this and then puts on a suit and tie and teams up with T.D. Jakes to rush to the White House and see the Pope while he is is here in Washington, D.C. Why does he put on a suit and tie and join forces with T.D. Jakes, a known anti-Trinitarian heretic who denies the doctrine of the Trinity, he goes and wants to see the Pope. Why would Rick Warren do that? Well, because he's the Pope and he just makes my heart go a flutter, right? Because he's our Pope. That type of unity, is that the type of unity that Jesus had in mind when he prayed that all of his people would be one? Is that biblical Christian unity? And speaking of T.D. Jakes, it was just a few years ago that James McDonald, a supposed Calvinist, and Mark Driscoll, a supposed Calvinist, from Seattle, had the Elephant Room too, this big conference where they get together, and they had T.D. Jakes there, who was an anti-Trinitarian, as I said, who is a heretic, and they asked him a bunch of softball questions that T.D. Jakes was able to answer in a way that would appease most untaught Christians who cannot define or describe the doctrine of the Trinity, and then when all of that was said and done, Mark Driscoll reached across the desk and knuckle-bumped T.D. Jakes and welcomed him to the Fellowship of Orthodoxy. Thanks, Mark. This was an Orthodox Calvinist? who did this with another supposed Orthodox Calvinist, embracing a man who denies the very things that I would die for, and we're supposed to embrace him. And this is done in the name of Christian unity. Beth Moore, a darling of evangelicalism, tweets out how excited she is to work with Joyce Meyer, who is a word-faith, prosperity-gospel-teaching heretic. And she tweets out pictures of her and Joyce working together on the TV set and how thrilled they are to work together. That's Beth Moore, who is an evangelical darling. David Barton, an evangelical darling, has joined forces with Glenn Beck, a Mormon. David Barton, if he is an evangelical, has nothing in common, nothing in common with Glenn Beck. Nothing of spiritual or lasting significance. Christianity has more in common with Islam than it does Mormonism because Islam is monotheistic and Mormonism is not monotheistic. And yet David Barton joins forces with Glenn Beck in an attempt to what? Reclaim America, re-Christianize our society, take us all back for God. And this is supposed to be a glossing over of mere insignificant denominational differences for the sake of displaying Christian unity. And then there was one in the headlines even just recently. And this one, this one tears my heart up worse than the other ones because I wouldn't have seen this one coming a few years ago. But did you see the group of evangelical and uh, uh, religious leaders who prayed over Donald Trump recently? The video is online if you would like to see it. And in that mix, you have rabbi, a rabbi, uh, rabbi, uh, was a Jewish rabbi. It's some Jewish name, Schreider Schneider, something like that. Rabbi Schneider. And also in that group is Paula White, a known prosperity gospel 
um, Word of Faith teacher. You had Kenneth Copeland, a charlatan, Word of Faith, heretic, prosperity gospel teacher. You had in there Steve Buncey, whom Justin Peters calls uh, a sewage-sucking, bottom-dwelling, bottom-feeder of the Word Faith movement. He uses the term bottom-feeder. I added the rest of that. <laughs> a bottom-feeder of the charismatic movement, and that means that of all of the Word Faith heretics, this guy sucks the, the sewage off of the bottom of that pond. Oh, and also there was David Jeremiah of Turning Point Ministries. That's right, Baptist pastor from Shadow Mountain Community Church down in San Diego, California. And you say, was he just happened to be walking by while the photo was uh, snapped and it was like a photobomb thing? No, no, afterwards he came out and defended his actions there. In the video, you can hear him praying over Donald Trump, calling him a man of God, and saying something in his prayer to this effect, may we look back upon this day and realize that we were laying hands upon and praying over the next president of the United States. Is this what Jesus meant? When he said, may they all be one? That's, that's the modern Christian idea of unity. No distinctions, no doctrines, no theologies, no divisions. Let's all embrace, and as long as you name the name of Jesus and I name the name of Jesus, we can be comfortable naming the name of Jesus together, even though we have no doctrinal similarities or no, nothing doctrinal in common is that Christian unity. And you don't have to go onto the national stage to see that type of nonsense. I mean, those things make me think, what type of a world do we live in? What type of a world do we live in when, when Protestant pastors call the Pope our Pope? And when otherwise Orthodox men who have spent life and ministry defending the historic Christian faith join forces with men who deny the historic Christian faith, faith and call them brothers? What type of world do we live in? You don't have to go on the national scene to see that. There are modern local examples of this as well. Let me give you a couple of them. As, as the pastor here is, is the one who answers the phone and, 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 and sort of is the, the face of Kootenai Community Church, for better or for worse. I don't even like that idea, but you probably wish you had a better face than mine representing you. But I, I get all kinds of mail. I get phone calls. I get emails. I get invitations to join in all types of community endeavors. Uh, see you at the poll and, and uh, prayer, prayer rallies here and prayer rallies there and protests here and demonstrations and prayer walks and all of these things to get together. And always the appeal is unity. Let us go out and show the community how we are all one in Christ. And also in this list is uh, pastors from other churches. Some of, you know, you know, they get the same invitations that I do. Some of them good churches, conservative churches, who would have nothing to do with that, as I wouldn't. And then there are other churches who just would embrace anything and everything that comes along and names the name of Christ. And that we all get the same invitations to all of these community events. And I'm not involved with any of those things. And you know why I don't get involved with any of those things? Because I have nothing in common with most of these men. You have nothing in common with most of these men. They deny things that I would die for. And I would die for things that they think are totally insignificant and meaningless. We're going to hold hands around a flagpole and pray? Pray for what? We have to have something that unites us, don't we? Or is it just a visible outward show of unity? And that's mostly what the Christian world is interested in, is a visible outward show of unity. Some years ago, about 15, more than 15 years ago now, there was a pastor fellowship in town that I was part of. A lot of conservative evangelical pastors there. We were affirmed that all of us were on the same page on the essentials of the gospel. And it became known that one of the local pastors, the First Christian Church, Tony Nelson, believed that he needed to be baptized to be saved. We heard him present his case. He defended his argument, presented his theology. We got to the end of all of that. There was five of us out of the 15 that said, no can do. We can't have anything to do with this. If this is what you think unites us, we're all on different pages. And five of us left, and we have never gone back, and I've never gone back to that group. Why do I not go back to that group? Because if we cannot agree on what it must I do to be saved, we don't have any agreement to go beyond that step. 
Because I don't believe that we can have any kind of unity on those terms. So those are some of the false ideas or false expressions of unity that we see pressed upon the church even today. And, and as the five of us were leaving that group, the appeal of the, all of the community of pastors was, don't leave because what will the community think? And what will the Christian community think? And what will unbelievers think if they see you dividing lines and the Christian community is not one? And we said the Christian community is not one. The actual Christian community is one, but we can't embrace people who are not even part of the Christian community and pretend that we are one with them when in fact we are not. So what are some false views of unity? Let me give you a few of them. Those are some false expressions. Let me offer you a false, some false views of unity. Some people think that biblical unity, these are wrong ways to think of unity, that biblical unity is mere organizational unity. So we are told if we can get rid of all denominations and get rid of all divisions and distinctions among us, then we could all get together and just be one big church. This is kind of the emphasis of the World Council of Churches started in 1948. In the wake of World War I and in the midst of World War II, the World Council of Churches was was started, and this was their big push to have one organization over all of these other ones that would sort of represent one church and speak for all Christians on the face of the planet. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on John chapter 17, describes the emphasis of his day, and this was back in the around the 60s, 50s and 60s. Lloyd-Jones writes this, What we are generally told today can be summarized like this. The greatest scandal in the world is a disunited church, and the scandal must be removed. It must also be removed because it is the greatest hindrance to evangelism. It is the multiplicity of denominations that constitutes one of the greatest hindrances to men and women who are outside the church believing the gospel. If we could only get rid of these denominations and have one great world or super church, then people would be ready to listen to the gospel and probably accept it. End quote. That's the emphasis in our day. Now that's not Lloyd-Jones defending that. He was describing the theology of his day and it, it is equally pertinent and pernicious in our own day. In John chapter 17, I was reading Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this passage, and Spurgeon has a response to this. Um, I'm going to read it to you in full. It's a bit long, but I think that you will enjoy it. Spurgeon said this, concerning John 17, These words of the Savior have been perverted to the doing of a world of mischief. Ecclesiastics have fallen asleep. And by ecclesiastics, he means like priests and clergy. Ecclesiastics have fallen asleep, which indeed is their ordinary condition. <laughs> And while asleep, they have dreamed a dream, a dream founded upon the letter of the Savior's words, of which they discern not the spiritual sense. Falling asleep, I say, these ecclesiastics have dreamed of a great confederation, presided over by a number of ministers, these again governed by superior officers, and these again by others, these topped at last by a supreme visible head who must be either a person or a council. This great confederacy containing within itself kingdoms and nations becomes so powerful as to work upon states to influence politics, to guide councils, and even to gather together and to move armies. True, the shadow of the Savior's teaching, my kingdom is not of this world, must have caused an occasional nightmare in the midst of their dream, but they dreamed on, and what is worse, they turned the dream into a reality. And the time was when the professed followers of Christ were all one, when looking north, south, east, west, from the center at the Vatican, one united body covered all Europe. And what was the result? Did the world believe that God had sent Christ? The world believed the very opposite. The world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity. And thinking men became infidels. And it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer north, south, east, or west. All professors were one, but the world believed not. The fact being that this was not the unity which Jesus had so much as thought of. It never was his intention to set up a great united body to be called a church which should dominate and lord everywhere over the souls of men. He never intended a church within its ranks, kings, 
princes and statesmen who might be worldly, ungodly, hateful, sensual, and devilish. It was never Christ's design to set up a conscience-crushing engine of uniformity. And so the great man-devised machine, when it was brought to perfection and set to work with the greatest possible vigor, instead of working out that the world should believe that the Father had sent Christ, worked out just this, that the world did not believe anything at all, but became infidel, licentious, and rotten at the core. And the the system had to be abated as a common nuisance and something better brought into the world to restore morality. Yet people dream that dream still, Even good people do so, period, end quote. Spurgeon was right. That is not the type of unity that Jesus Christ had in mind. This is Reformation Month. October 31st, 1517, is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he was protesting corruptions, perversions of Scripture, false doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church, and all of the immorality that had come to characterize the the papacy. He was protesting all of that, and he wanted a reform from within the church. So he was a Protestant protesting the uh, Catholic Church looking for reform, and he launched the Protestant Reformation. Reform turned about to be um, impossible, and and, and not not even likely at all. It was impossible. And so they broke away from that. And ever since then, you have Protestants, and you have Catholics. There was a time when we had a organizational unity that existed in the Christian church. And it was a dark, dark age. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of unity. A second misnomer or mischaracterization of unity is to think that it is uniformity. It's uniformity that all of us look the same, we act the same, we worship the same, we all read the same Bible translation, we all speak the same, we use the same language. That's uniformity. You can have uniformity without having unity. You can have a whole bunch of people who all look the same, but not have any of them united on anything. And just and, and you can have unity without anybody even looking like anybody else or talking like anybody else. We could all have different Bible translations here, or many different Bible translations here, and all of us yet be united on essential doctrines. And there'd be true unity without uniformity. And this is is this not the analogy of the body in First Corinthians chapter twelve? You have various gifts and various talents and skills and people of different backgrounds all manifesting their gifts in a unique way, and that there is diversity within the body, and yet there is one unified body. Is everybody a hand? No. Is everybody a foot? No. Is everybody an eyeball? No, nobody we don't we're not all the same part of the body. There is one body with perfect unity and yet a diversity in the church. And, and that is the type of unity that Jesus is describing. The one talked about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's not uniformity. Third type of unity that some people try and think is Christian unity is ecumenical unity. And this is where the people say the doctrine divides us. And, and uh, we're divided by all of these things. So let's gloss over doctrine, make nothing of doctrine. We don't say anything is true because the minute we do, we start to lay down parameters and lines and, and we don't want to divide people. A young man whom I know who goes to church in Spokane recently came and talked with me and we were talking about his church and he said he's in a church where over the course of the last little while he's realized how shallow and banal, empty and vacuous the preaching is and he was lamenting this and he said he went to the pastor and he asked the pastor about this and the pastor said, well, we don't want to do anything that went divide the body and we don't want to talk about any deep doctrines or any deep theology because the minute you do that, people get divided and we don't want to divide the church so we're just, we're just dealing with things on the surface and the pastor was fine with that and this young man wasn't fine with that. And I said, this is, this is what you get when you have an ecumenical, when ecumenism is the founding principle of your faith. When, when you begin with the presupposition, and we're not going to divide anybody by talking about doctrine, then all you can do is go across the surface and hit all of the things that nobody would disagree with. Because the minute you pause and you begin to talk about even something like unity, like I am doing, you begin to draw lines in the sand and people have to get on one side of the line or the other side of the line. And so the only way to keep from dividing anybody, since truth divides, people, namely believers from unbelievers, since truth does this dividing work, the only way to not divide anybody is to do what? 
Not affirm that anything is true. And that's the state of modern evangelicalism. We don't want to say anything is true because the minute we do, we draw a line in the sand. So what did this young man do? He ended up leaving the church, going to a different church. And so, irony of ironies, in an attempt not to offend anybody, they offended him. In an attempt not to divide anybody, they divided him right out of the body to another church. And he's better for it, and certainly the other church will be better for it. That's modern evangelicalism. That's, that's ecumenism. You've heard us people say that doctrine divides, so we stay away from doctrine. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Doctrine does not divide. False doctrine divides. True doctrine unites. Let me give you a thought experiment. If everybody in this room believed the truth and only the truth and nobody believed anything that was false, would there be any divisions among us in our theology? There wouldn't, would there? None whatsoever. But the minute false doctrine comes in and somebody believes that, then we have a division, don't we? And what causes the division? Truth? Doctrine? That doesn't cause division. Truth unites. False doctrine divides, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 16, I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and divisions, hindrances among you, contrary to the teaching which you have received, and mark them. Mark those who bring in false doctrine, because it is false doctrine that causes the divisions and the hindrances among people. True doctrine does not divide. True doctrine, the truth, unites the people of God around the truth. So those are the false views of of unity. Now let's talk about what unity actually is. Here are three things that are true or that define true biblical unity. First, true biblical unity is not is not a unity without truth, but a unity about truth. It's not a unity without truth, it's a unity about truth. That is to say that truth is central to true Christian unity. Truth is central to it. Do you really think that Jesus would be praying for and encouraging unity, a truthless, doctrineless, and theology-less unity, uh, and a unity at the expense of truth, do you think that Jesus would really be praying for and encouraging that when he just prayed in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And when he has all the way through the Gospel of John said that these things characterize his people, that they love the truth, that they know the truth, they've been set free by the truth, they've embraced the truth, and they respond to the truth. Do you really think that now, on the final day of his life, that he would be encouraging a unity that with a total disregard for truth? Think he'd be doing that? No. You think he would be doing that when he says in verse 19, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the what? The truth. It is all about truth. Christian unity is about truth. Truth is at the center of it. And if there is no truth at the center of the unity, and it is not the essential truth which unites, then we do not have true unity. No matter how close we cuddle with each other around a flagpole, no matter how close we cuddle with each other while we do a community outreach, these things are meaningless because without the truth at the center of it, it's not unity. It's just a a pretend outward show of something that does not in reality exist. So true Christian unity is a unity not without truth, but all the way around and about the truth. That is what unites us. And so I would suggest that rather than blurring the lines between what is true and what is false, between doctrines, that we draw the lines even clearer. And let's draw the line solid and say, this is what we say is true. You say that is true, let's have a great discussion about it. And you'll either step across the line or I'll either step across the line. But at the end of the day, we're either going to be united or divided by it. But that which will unite us will be the truth. And so rather than dividing the lines and obscuring the differences, I think we should actually, I'm not saying we should divide over whether you like ham at a potluck or turkey over at a potluck. Not those type of things. But listen, the essentials which are called to unite the church, the essentials which sanctify his church, his body, those are the things that should unite us. And we ought to proclaim that loud and proud and draw lines and make it clear and make it precise 
and make it accurate and then say these are the things that unite us. So let's unite around this. It's not a unity without the truth. It's a unity about the truth. Second, it's not an organizational unity. It's an organic unity. And by organic, I don't mean free-range chickens without hormones or pesticides or anything like that. By organic, I'm talking about the the type of unity that, is, that consists of life. It is the Spirit of God that has given life to me. It's the Spirit of God who has given eternal life to you. The thing that unites all of God's people is the common life that we are all partakers of the divine nature and that the same life that I have, which is eternal life and gives me forgiveness of sins, is the same life that every true Christian who has ever lived or will live or lives right now also enjoys. It is that organic life, that unity, regeneration of the Spirit of God. That is what unites. That is what marks out the true Christians. Jesus himself said that he wants all those who have believed upon him through the testimony of the apostles to be one. Those are the parameters. Belief in Jesus Christ and what he has said. If you are outside of that, you do not belong to him. So we have no incentive, nor do we have an obligation to pretend unity with those who do not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and his person and his work. And so the, what, organ, what unites us is not an organizational unity of no denominations and no distinctions and no labels and no theological camps. What unites us is the life that we have in Jesus Christ. It is an organic unity. And third, it is not a physical unity, but a spiritual unity. Our time is running away from us. I have to go through this rather quickly. It is not a physical unity, but a spiritual unity. That is to say that the things that unite us are not the outward demonstrations. It's not the outward realities. It's not the outward expressions. And any time you begin to try and fabricate some outward display of unity when there is no real substance to it, it becomes a fiction and a, and a pretend. That which unites us is not anything physical. That which unites us is entirely spiritual, which means that it is not a geographic thing that unites us. My brother that lives in northern Canada is as much my brother in Jesus Christ as the Christian who lives across the backyard or just down the street from me. We have just, I have just as much unity with the man who lives thousands of miles away as the person who lives across my backyard. That's real quick. It's not geographic. Second, it's not ethnic. It has nothing to do with your nationality. Some of you are Mexican. Some of you are German. Some of you are Irish. Some of you are like me. You're a mutt. You represent more nations. Even the UN says, hold on, time out. You've got you to put some parameters somewhere. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic affiliation is. I, I'm, I am as united with my brother in Christ who is a Mexican as I am with my brother in Christ who is a black man in South Africa. This unity is not physical. It's not visible. Sometimes the demonstrations of it, the expressions of it, are physical. They are tangible. They are real. And we can see them. But the true unity is not those things. Those things exist because true unity is truly there. And it's not chronological. I, I am as one with the Apostle Peter as I am with you, if you're in Christ. Not chronological. 2,000 years separates us. doesn't matter. If you were to take a time machine, go back 500 years in time, you would find Christians who dress differently than you, think differently, and you grew up in a different culture, use different language than you, but you could sit down at a table and have fellowship and pray together because you love the same Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the same life that is in you that is in them. It's not chronological. You could take a time machine and go 500 years into the future, if the Lord should tarry that long, and I hope He doesn't, you go 500 years into the future and you would find Christians with a different culture, a different language, a different expressions of it, a different dress, they would sound differently, but you could sit down at a table and you could have fellowship with them and pray to the same Lord because the thing that you, is in them that gives them life is the same thing in you that gives you life. It's not geographical, it's not cultural, it's not ethical, ethnical, ethnic. I'll get it. It's not ethnic. It's not anything physical. It's not chronological. Recently I was on a plane, and I close with this. I flew from Spokane to Memphis, Tennessee. So I got on the plane in Spokane. And uh, on that first leg of my journey to wherever it is that you go, he was going to Michigan. Uh, a guy sat down to me. He was next to me. He was going to Michigan. I was going to Memphis. And 
So that first leg, wherever it was that took us, that was right on the way to Memphis, you know, like Honolulu or Boston or Miami or wherever it was that we stopped on the way to Memphis, he was, he sat down and we had a conversation. He found out I was a Christian. I pastored a church. So we chit chat a little bit and, I, and he said, so you're a believer? I said, I am. And he asked me for my profession of faith. I described to him how I got saved and I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And I said, what church do you attend? And he attends a church in Spokane. And I recognized from the name of the church that it is the sending church of Dave and Lois Belch, who our church also supports as missionaries. And so we had that in common, and we began to discuss Dave and Lois, and how did you come to know Dave and Lois, and how does your church support Dave and Lois, and isn't it great, and Dave and Lois' daughter goes there. So we chit-chatted about that, and talked about his spiritual gifts and how he uses them in service to his church and how he's involved there and and, uh, uh, what he does for Dave and Lois, and he's gone on some missions trips and spent time with them, and uh, the fellowship that we had was sweet and wonderful, and we, we talked some theology, we talked some politics, we talked some culture, and we got off the plane and Honolulu or Boston or wherever it was, and we had lunch there, and, and he bought lunch, and we prayed together, and we enjoyed a meal together, and we went our separate ways. I've never called him or contacted him or seen him or emailed him since. We haven't talked. It was perfect fellowship. You experienced this with people? You meet a complete stranger, and you have more in common with them than you have a, with a blood relative that you've known all your life who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure there's some corner of his theology somewhere that if we were to explore it, we would find some differences or distinctions. Those things never came up. For two two hours, we sat and we talked about the Lord and spiritual things, had perfect fellowship. It was my brother in Christ. Never knew him before, never seen him again. But I will see him in heaven. Maybe I'll never see him again. Maybe I will. But I know that I will see him in heaven because the thing that is in him that gives him life is the thing that is in me that gives me life. That is Christian unity. So now I ask you, is Christian unity a good thing? Is it desirable? It is. Does it exist? It does. Jesus' prayer in John 17 has not remained unanswered. It isn't. All of his people are united. There is perfect unity among his people. Among his people. Is it perfectly expressed in this fallen world? Is it perfectly seen? No, it's not. Listen, it never will be. It cannot be. But when we stand in glory, we will look around at the expanse of the elect people of God, all of those whom the Father has given to the Son, and we will look at this sea of humanity and say, we are one. Perfectly united. Just as Jesus prayed that it would be, just as Jesus desired that it would be, and it is. What we see in our, in our experiences of unity in this world are glimpses of that fulfilled reality which we will see in full in eternity. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, you have done that work of uniting your people, your church, and we are thankful for it. We're thankful that we're part of it. We're thankful that you, by your grace, have brought us into this great body, this great bride, the church. And you have made us one by an act of your will, your sovereign grace, and your good love. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us as a local body of believers to be united about the truth, humble in mind, expressing that love for one another in appreciation for the great life that you have given us that has made us one, not only with one another, but with you and with the saints from of old and the saints in the future. We thank you that we will stand in glory and in heaven and praise you and appreciate this wonderful oneness that we have with all those who are the saints of the Most High God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.